Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I should say happy Friday, because it is Friday, and no matter where you all live in the world, I hope that all of you do have a good upcoming weekend. I will say this, uh, we are getting very close to the end of this uh, podcast uh, topic series of Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign. It has been a great uh, series, and I know that a lot of you who have been tuning in have learned something that you didn't know before, given that this battle was, in fact, the final battle. Yes, we were told for years that Yorktown was the one that pretty much ended, um, not just the Revolutionary War, but perhaps for the Southern Campaign. Of course, we do have to be reminded that while, yes, uh, Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown was pivotal, fighting still commenced, but it commenced more so on a smaller scale. So in other words, if I'm not mistaken, didn't we have to wait until about 1783 with that Treaty of Paris, which officially ended the Revolutionary War altogether? Yes. So... You know, we can always be reminded left and right about Yorktown's importance, but just be reminded that, for one, uh, the battle at Yorktown, or let alone the siege of Yorktown, did not officially end the American Revolutionary War altogether, and that there was another battle in the Southern Campaign that truly did mark the final battle of the campaign onto itself, being what we are uh, currently discussing, uh, Utah Springs. You know, something else that um, I have to be reminded of is that tomorrow uh, marks a, an important date in American history. Tomorrow marks the 235th anniversary of the United States Constitution. You know, 235 years, it, you know, on one hand it seems like a long time, but in actuality it's not. And... For me, uh, living in the United States, I am very thankful that this document has um, remained intact for all these years, even in the most trying of circumstances. And I would certainly hope that in 25 years from now that it's still there. I'm not trying to sound political, but what I am trying to say is that, you know, sometimes the most fragile forms of government are the ones that can be easily taken for granted, being those of uh, Democratic or uh, Republican uh, styles of governing. You know, Benjamin Franklin said um, to people back in his home state of Pennsylvania, after the uh, Constitution was ratified by the uh, state legislature in Pennsylvania, people approached um, the, the great statesman, being the elder Franklin. They said to him, you know, what are we going to call this... Um, style of government. He said it's going to be called a republic. It's up to you all as to how as to whether or not we can keep it. In other words, you know, us individuals living in the present have a duty to carry out so that uh, we will be able to secure a better future that is for future generations that come after us. It may not be the grandest document it may not be, at times, perhaps the best governing institution being that of a democracy, but it's the best we can come up with. 
especially with regards to the Constitution. Yes, it may not have uh, solved all of the problems or all of the uh, suspicions or the questions of uncertainty, but it was better than come coming away with nothing considering that the uh, Articles of Confederation had failed um, significantly. Uh, for those of you who would want to learn more about um, the Constitution, um, especially for those of you who are new to my podcast, uh, I did a series last summer called Signing Their Rights uh, Signing Their Rights Away about the fame and misfortunes of the men who signed the United States Constitution. Uh, check it out, and you will definitely find that it's uh, very well worth learning about, uh, largely in part because, you know, we do need to be reminded that the signers of the Constitution, being that uh, 39 out of 55 delegates whom signed the document, who uh, were in attendance in Philadelphia, they just didn't convene for a couple of days. Uh, they were there from uh, mid-May of 1787 up until uh, the middle of uh, September. So, you know, 235 years is remarkable, and we still have the opportunity to set a good example. But I would hope that um, for future, future generations to come that, um, that those generations understand what uh, sacrifices were made uh, from generations past to assure that what we still have today you know, will remain intact and not be taken for granted. And again, I'm not trying to sound political here, but it's just one of those things that we need to be reminded that, uh, for one, freedom is not free, and two, um, just because we live in a under a democracy or a republic, it, that too should not be taken for granted either, because there are uh, plenty of uh, nations in the world whom live under, uh, where the people live under dictatorships. They have no say. Um, Martial law reigns. Um, people are constantly living in fear, not knowing if uh, the if government officials are going to come knocking on their doors, um, seizing family members, not prov not uh, reading them their rights. So, you know, we just have we need to be reminded of what we have, and would certainly pray and hope that for those who live in um, other parts of the world where. There are dictatorships that one day future generations in that country could perhaps live under um, better styles of uh, government. But anyways, I think it's uh, important that we uh, reshift our focus back to, um, what, back to what we've been discussing for quite some time, and that is about Utah Springs. In this uh, podcast uh, segment, and we have a lot of ground to cover, but we're going to learn exactly how many hours the battle was the Battle of Utah Springs lasted. We're also going to learn um, a great deal about um, letters written by Generals Green and Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stewart. Uh, we're going to learn really um, everything there is to know about how all of this comes to an end. So let's get our seatbelts fastened on and be prepared uh, to go for another um, upcoming segment to Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign by Robert Dunkerley and Irene Boland. Exactly how many hours did the Battle of Utah Springs last? Well, it is fair to say that this battle did last over an hour, which was unheard of. Did the battle last three hours or five hours, given that it went over an hour? 
the answer is choice A, three hours. Therefore, this means that uh, the Battle of Utah Springs lasted longer than previous fought battles in the Southern Campaign from Guilford Cornhouse, the Siege of 96, Calpens, back at the start of 1781. Utah Springs Battle was the only engagement that lasted well over an hour. Most battles, on average, lasted anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. And remember, folks, you know, battles just don't happen overnight. Battles are often, at times, uh, they can be considered freak occasions. But the objective in a battle would be to try to uh, defeat your opponent in a timely manner. That is, you know, a reasonable time frame of, say, 30 minutes to an hour at best. Little did both sides know that this battle on September 8th of 1781 would last three hours, something that was totally unheard of in the 18th century, and let alone fighting um, in the American Revolutionary War. But, you know, there are firsts, and this was a unique first, to say the least. Now, fighting alone in September down south was challenging, given just how hot uh, the weather could be. But fighting for three hours to many soldiers, regardless of the side they were on, was beyond exhausting. Is it fair to say that many of the um, troops who came from Maryland and Delaware were not used to South Carolina weather? No. Now, many of them had been there for pretty much about a year's time since um, the time that the, uh, Cam the debacle at Camden had happened. But it is fair to say that even after a year's time, you, one could still have a hard time being fully acclimated uh, to this uh, kind of um, oppressive heat. I mean, it's one thing in Delaware to be dealing with 70-degree weather and maybe on occasion 80-degree, uh, but when you're getting into the upper 80s, into the 90s, that's a whole different um, game when it comes to uh, weather, and especially for the British troops. I mean, think about it. many of um, many of those soldiers under Lieutenant Colonel um, Stewart's uh, command did not arrive into South Carolina until uh, June of 1781. So they're still getting um, adjusted to the terrain, not just to the terrain, but the weather itself. And as I said from the previous podcast, you know, we do need to keep in mind that. Soldiers didn't have Aquafina bottled water on them. We don't have Gatorade, Powerade, Red Bull energy drinks. If you do have a canteen on you uh, with uh, with a liquid beverage, uh, that is an advantage. But we also should keep in mind that not all soldiers have canteens or flasks, rather, I should say, on hand. Um, it might be fair to say those whom have a flask or a canteen with them are probably of upper level uh, rank status, but that's just my that's just my assumption. Now, it, we did say that fighting for three hours to many of the soldiers, regardless of the side they were on, was definitely beyond exhausting. Most soldiers, if not all, were prepared or let alone trained to fight the enemy less or right up to one hour at maximum. In the midst of uh, the retreat back to Burdell's plantation, many of General Green's troops stopped for water 
along the Congaree Road, whereupon stood present. I can only imagine what the water quality of that pond was. But of course, for these soldiers, maybe a lot of them just didn't know any better, but if you're that desperate for water, I guess you'll do whatever is necessary in terms of trying to stay hydrated. So just remember, folks, when you're fighting in oppressive um, conditions like this, in terms of it being hot, let's just you know keep in mind what uh, many soldiers did not have. They didn't have the the what do you call it, the the proper um, means of um, beverage access like we do in, in today's more uh, convenient world. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart uh, did write to General Cornwallis, advising him of the Americans' retreat from the battlefield ground, including the cavalry's presence in protecting their uh, full-scale retreat. Stewart did mention in a letter to Cornwallis, he mentioned in this letter about a particular regret. And what do you think that particular regret was? It had to do with not having um, sufficient uh, cavalry. In other words, he had cavalry, but it wasn't of the most uh, sufficient number. So, for um, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, if he had had more cavalry available, the chances of a clear-cut victory, in his eyes, would have been seen as all the more imminent. You know, having cavalry is essential because for so many reasons, you know, cavalry are, are, are quick to lead a charge. Their presence alone when charging could, you know, break an enemy's lines. Cavalry uh, can move uh, quick from point A to point B in obtaining intelligence and being able to relay that information back to the uh, commanding officers um, regardless of their rank. By not having enough cavalry, it did slow Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's um, ability to be able to um, strike a decisive blow where he, where he would have been able to have um, obtained a clear-cut victory. Here's a question for us to ponder over. Once the American troops returned back to Burdell's plantation, what state of mood uh, resonated in General Green's mind? Here, let's try to put ourselves in General Green's shoes. You know, he is the lead commander of the Southern Continental Army. As Green is overseeing his um, American troops retreat back, is it fair to say that General Green is frustrated? Yes, he is frustrated. Is he frustrated for, you know, for a variety of reasons? Yes. Does it have anything to do with um, the performance of his soldiers? No, he's not frustrated at, at his soldiers because he knew that his soldiers had given everything they had um, and, and going above and beyond the call of duty to try to um, achieve something that, that had been... Um, that had been desperately needed, and that was a victory. 
So for starters, General Green is frustrated given what had already transpired battle-wise leading up to Utah Springs. And that had to do with consecutive defeats at Guilford Courthouse, Hobkirk's Hill to 96. And while, yes, you know, it's interesting, yes, at Guilford Courthouse, uh, the British lost more men than General Green's um, side did. And yes, General Green's um, men um, remained uh, far more intact than uh, General Cornwallis's troops did. Cornwallis's men somehow uh, were able to um, to deliver a um, to deliver a punch that uh, that Green didn't have, but of course, as Parliament said, even in the midst of their losing what four hundred some men uh, whom either died or were wounded, it was obviously a combination of both. As some members of Parliament said, another Pyrrhic victory like this one will pretty much doom us in terms of. Uh, in terms of us just not being able to win this war altogether, you know. In other words, yes, we can fund the war, but if we can't, um, if we can't go about achieving a slam dunk victory to where, to where we can um, force our uh, subjects below us to uh, resubmit, to have them resubmit their allegiance uh, to the crown, then what's the point in keep in keeping on fighting? You know, we can't afford to have pyrrhic victories if we're gonna. Um, because think about it, we we can't replace our soldiers um, this quickly. You know, we already it's bad enough if we have those who are dead and wounded, but how are we going to replace those? You know, they thought that the people of South Carolina would um, take up arms with them, but now they're coming to the realization that people in the Carolinas are not doing that. So, okay, but anyways, for Nathaniel Green, yes, he has seen defeats at Guilford Courthouse, Hobkirk's Hill to 96, he does have his army in place, but even after the siege of 96, which was a four-week siege, that lasted until around the middle of um, early to uh, mid part of June, General Green, after that siege of 96, had gone about resting um, soldiers whom had fought at that battle, but at the same time he went about recruiting new soldiers whom were willing to go about participating in the fight at Utah Springs. So, you know, for a, a general or any commanding officer, they need time to recruit new soldiers whom are willing to carry on this fight, and they need to be trained. And because we have to remember, folks, battles don't happen overnight. But what is important here is that it's all about time. And time itself is critical you know, time is not something that even our um, commanding officers in this war could have taken for granted. There were so many things against them, but yet they somehow managed to make the impossible possible through, we could say through various factors, one would be through sheer luck. So for General Green, after the siege of 96, he had gone about resting to recruiting new soldiers whom would go about participating participating in the fight at Utah Springs. But in the midst of what um, ensued at Utah Springs, Green sadly sees all of his efforts that led up to this battle now come apart, largely due to circumstances beyond his own control. Yes, it is tough to see... Um, it is tough to see um, the breakup of your army come apart, 
especially when it pertains to something that you don't have control over. Thirdly, uh, Green felt a sense of defeat, not because his army fought poorly, but knowing what stood in the way between victory and defeat. What stood in the way? That brick house. Green, Green's troops had, they had the British right where they wanted them. They had them breaking. They had them retreating. They were retreating in full-scale panic mode. He knew where they were retreating back to, but little did Green know that this brick house would become a war zone, a war zone um, filled with British reserves who really were at the right place at the right time and staying behind and then, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart himself being in, in a proper position to um, basically motivate his um, disheveled forces by getting them to reform and uh, not just not only being able to reform, but doing so to where they all came together and delivered um, some uh, de delivered uh, deadly rounds of fire on Green's men. So we often have to wonder if this brick house had not stood in the way, would Green's men have ultimately prevailed? That's a question that we'll never know, but what we do know is that if the brick house had not been there, there is some likelihood or a, a better likelihood that uh, perhaps Green's men would have uh, been able to have taken the day 100% once and for all. For each battle Green's forces fought in, the time factor played a crucial element because time itself involves a process behind building up an army. And when men are killed or wounded, time goes into recruiting and finding men whom are willing to fill the gaps or the plugs and restoring an army's ability to function 100% or function on a 100% level. Yeah, I mean, it's bad enough if you have five or ten men wounded, but it's not like they could just recover overnight and say, hey, you know, I'm cleared, ready to go, and ready to, ready to fight, as though I was never wounded to begin with. You know, okay, let's say you have five soldiers who are dead. How are you going to replace those five soldiers? You've got to go out and recruit You've got to find uh, men who are willing to make the ultimate sacrifices, not just for their families, but for their country. Nathaniel Green is a very brilliant general, and I could see how for every, um, for every defeat he had endured that it was a personal, because, uh, because uh, given in large part, you know, he's a very brilliant tactician, he's a brilliant strategist, strategist, I should say. Uh, Green is one of those men who knows how to go effectively behind the scenes and coordinating an attack, how to go about uh, catching the enemy off limits to where to where the um, to where his men are on the offense, whereas the British are constantly on the defense, meaning that every time they're getting hit and knocked down the, and losing men, they know that they are on the run and also knowing that they have to replace those people. So for Nathaniel Green, you know, he, he's the savior in the sense that 
he he introduces irregular style warfare. Yes, it's already been in place, but it became a more fixed norm in slowing down Cornwallis's ability in getting to Virginia and also slowing down the, the overall uh, levels of British um, momentum that they had enjoyed prior to his arrival into the Carolinas uh, by late 1780. Now, September 8th of, of 1781, just one month before the British surrender at Yorktown, Virginia, took place. In the aftermath of Utah Springs Battle, or let alone the aftermath of the battle, it became harder for general means behind building up um, new supplies to training new recruits, let alone maintaining an army long term. For Nathaniel Green, he saw Utah Springs as a once-in-a-lifetime um, battle, or really more so a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity chance to strike the enemy. You don't, you know, a general or an army, let alone, does not get these kinds of opportunities very often. And even if another one were to arise during the Revolutionary War down south, it would take months before another, um, before another opportunity that uh, could bear um, resemblance to Utah Springs. It would take a good while before another opportunity like that like this one could ever arise again. So it's not like General Green can just go to the store and say, hey, I need some more supplies. Um, film, let me know where, you know where I can go in town to uh, get some new recruits to join. We're not talking modern-day um, conveniences, folks. Um, but let's just keep in mind that even in the aftermath of Utah Springs, it does become all the more difficult for um, any officer, let alone in the case for Nathaniel Green, to be able to go about building up new supplies to training new, new recruits, and let alone overseeing an army long term. Now, did General Green wish to resume fighting at Utah Springs come the day after on September the 9th? Believe it or not, folks, he did. He still believed that there was an opportunity uh, for another uh, fight. So the answer here is yes. The morning of September 9th saw General Green order um, dragoon units from Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee's and Francis Marion squadrons by sending them south on a mission to intercept all enemy reinforcements coming from Charleston to support Lieutenant Colonel Stewart. All right, it's good to see that Green still feels as though there is a spark. He's not ready to throw in the towel yet. It seems like Green is one of those officers who would like to fix the problem. He knows he's in a bind, but he still believes that, that when it's all said and done with, this problem or the dilemma he's in can be fixed, and he can, he can look back on it and say, hey, I didn't leave anything on the table to chance, I gave it my best. Uh, my soldiers know this, but I don't want Congress uh, questioning anything that I know um, is false and just downright um, ludicrous. 
And I think you all would be very surprised to know that um, during the American Revolutionary War, many in, in the Continental Congress were often quick to rush to judgment when officers whom led, um, whom led units into battle, if those officers did not perform to the best of their abilities in the eyes of Continental Congress per the reports given to them, they would often rush to judgment and go as far as requesting a court-martial trial. It did happen, folks. It happened to some very uh, well-known officers. Many of them were cleared, but you all would be very surprised to know that there were many uh, well-to-do officers, or well-known officers, I should say, whom never really got the full respect they deserved from members of Congress. Is it fair to say that even the Continental Congress Many in the Continental Congress during the time of the American Revolutionary War were engaged in partisan politics. Partisan politics is nothing new, by the way. So, as for this mission that Nathaniel Green um, instructed by sending um, Dragoon units from Lieutenant Colonel Lee's and Francis Marion's squadrons um, going southward, the mission wasn't a Grand Slam one. Although there is some good news to report, Francis Marion's dragoons did capture 24 British and four Loyalist soldiers, but it was not enough to strike a dagger into the enemy's heart. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee made reference that September 9, 1781 was a day that uh, saw more rain versus sunshine. The, you know, we should, you know, keep in mind, again, too, that weather, now, of course, we can't take weather for granted, but isn't it fair to say that rain alone was known to stop an 18th century army to a, an entire uh, standstill or a halt? Uh, the answer is yes. When it rained in 18th century times... The roads became so clogged with mud to where travel was virtually impossible. I don't think any wagons could effectively make their way through, um, through thick mud to where the wagons themselves could get stuck in the mud. So once it, once it starts raining like, there's, uh, like it's cats and dogs, the roads simply become clogged uh, to the point where mud is excessive, and then the rain itself soaks the soldiers. This might sound cheesy, but let's keep in mind, folks, in 1781, there are no modern-day rain jackets, and many of the soldiers are without tents. Of course, even if they pitch their tent somewhere on ground that wasn't too saturated, they're still, the tents are still going to get, um, they're still going to get covered in water, and who's to say that the tents that the soldiers have are not waterproof either? So, so let's think about, you know, here we are in the midst of um, rainy weather. You know, it's not like we can go to the nearest hotel and, and get some uh, shelter from the weather. I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with uh, Mother Nature's, um, we're at the mercy of uh, Mother Nature here, to say the least. So supplies become ruined. And if supplies become ruined, does is it fair to say that weapons are no longer usable? Yes. Think about it. You're not going to be able to um, be able to use uh, 
your cartridge rounds or your uh, powder that you would need to put into uh, your uh, musket or rifle, if that becomes wet, then then there's no use in even trying to um, prime your um, rifle or musket. What all were uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's army uh, doing on September 9th? Well, the army went about burying their dead, to gathering supplies, tending to the wounded, and making preparations behind leaving camp. And believe it or not, folks, that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's army did have to leave about 70 or more wounded troops behind. I know that sounds hard to believe, but it did happen. Could it be, though, that they are going to come back for them? Yes. But we also have to be reminded of the fact that not all, not, that not all wagons could accommodate all wounded troops. So yes, folks, uh, there were uh, wounded troops left behind. Stewart's army, or let alone his troops, went about discarding roughly a thousand muskets deemed no longer usable by disposing of them into the springs. If that's odd enough, the carnage of dead and wounded men to horses, non-functioning cannons, wagons, non-usable equipment from haversacks being small bags carried on one's back to canteens, broken muskets all found lying around woods and fields west of the brick house. The brick house alone was home to large numbers of dead and wounded troops on both sides. I can't imagine seeing all this carnage. It's one thing for soldiers to clear out a battlefield. It's one thing for them to perhaps be tending to the wounded. It's one thing to go about burying the dead, gathering supplies. But what about all the carnage that's still there? Those scars don't go away. Over time they will, but they don't go away right at that moment. Think about when you see the carnage, you, you see sacrifice, you see soldiers giving it their all. This is the last stand because there probably won't be another battle like this one. Yes, you ha you've got the siege and the siege campaign of Yorktown, but of course what people don't realize north of South Carolina in Yorktown, Virginia, was that, there, that, was that there was another battle fought. The only way they'll know that a battle was fought just before the siege of Yorktown kicked into full gear is by means of a letter. And I would have to wonder that, that Nathaniel Green himself would be the one to write that letter. Now, did General Green write to uh, British Lieutenant Colonel Stewart? Yes, he did. I'm sure many of you are thinking, why in the world would a, um, an American general want to be writing to the enemy? Well, the reason for why he wrote to Stewart was because he proposed an end to all fighting and attending instead to those troops wounded whom Stuart himself had previously left behind. So in other words, you know, General Green's trying to show, trying to prove to Lieutenant Colonel Stuart that even the enemy, of course the British see the Americans as the enemy and the, and the Americans see the British as the enemy, vice versa, but General Green is trying to uh, show Lieutenant Colonel Stuart that, that the Americans would not harm those troops wounded and would... Um, and would provide whatever uh, care they could uh, give them if they were found on site. As for Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, he responded to Green's letter 
but by doing so to inform Green that he planned on leaving his wounded troops under a flag of truce. When there's a flag of truce, what does that mean, folks? A flag of truce is one where an agreement gets um, established, and it primarily has to do with not fighting for a certain period of time. So basically, a flag of truce, it's a white flag. And it's where both sides can uh, come to some agreement where they just will not fight until um, until the conditions or the terms are, have, are decided um, to be um, fixed or uh, modified. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart also included in his letter to General Green that Lieutenant Colonel William Washington was in fair condition. So it sounds like not only if he's in fair condition that he is being um, given the proper uh, medical treatment and care by, um, by British personnel or medical personnel. Now the British will retreat. The 30th Regiment, more than likely they would have come from Charleston and they uh, served as reinforcements in assisting Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's army with their retreat. On September the 11th of 1781, Stewart's army retreated all the way to Fairlawn, being an area not far from Charleston, which was the main British post. Um, Green's army did pursue Stewart's uh, forces, but were halted by obstacles along the road put into place earlier from African Americans serving under the crown. Those African Americans whom were whom had been serving under the crown went as far as cutting down trees and placing them across the roadway, blocking further advancement. I think it'd be fair to say that they had cut down um, a slew of uh, palmetto trees, and um, and given how resistant palmetto trees were during the time of the war, because they were used uh, for um, readout fortification purposes, and when cannonballs were fired, the cannonballs alone could not um, break apart the uh, palmetto um, trees, given how thick uh, the trees are, uh, which means that their resistance levels are very um, are very strong to where, um, regardless of the uh, size of the cannonball, the tree itself simply cannot be uh, broken. So, yes, the uh, African-Americans whom served under the, under the crown were responsible for um, were responsible for having uh, cut down uh, trees and placed them across the roadway, blocking uh, Green's army's uh, advancement. Now, did General Green write to fellow officers, state governors, along with members of Congress, not long after the Utah Springs battle had been fought? Uh, yes, he did. He emphasized in his letters that American forces had captured up to 500 prisoners, including multiple weapons. The British retreat back towards Charleston led General Green to believe that the end was nearing. The chances of another strike, or let alone attack, against the British now appeared ever so slim. September 12th, Green's army moved to Martin's Tavern, where the chase against Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's forces got called off. Green wrote to Stewart with regards to the state of wounded troops, conditions per both sides. 
Now, is it fair to describe the conditions of wounded troops as being uh, deplorable? Uh, in 18th century, uh, yes. I, I would say yes, and I could even say the same down the road when the Civil War comes, but of course that's for another generation in terms of our uh, history. But there is no doubt in my mind that um, it is definitely fair to say that the uh, that the conditions of wounded troops were in fact uh, deplorable. And in this case at Utah Springs, there were many wounded soldiers whom had been left unattended for multiple days. It wasn't that those whom, whom were not wounded and were okay, it's not that they ignored them on purpose, but we have to remember, folks, we don't have a hospital. We don't have uh, anything that's like a patient first. We don't have um, anything that bears a resemblance to a, a VA hospital in 1781 to care for those whom are uh, wounded. So many of the wounded soldiers had been uh, left unattended for multiple days, exposed to severe heat, without access to water, medicine, other essential needs, a lot of these essential needs that even we take for granted in today's time. I can't imagine in 1781 having been wounded, fighting for my life, and not being able to have get access to water, uh, medicines of the, of the time, not knowing how much longer, or let alone in terms of hours, I might have left to live. As for the American uh, troops whom were wounded and still survived, but in a wounded state of condition, they did get transported to uh, Lawrence's and Richardson's plantations. It is probably fair to say that many um, people's homes became uh, makeshift hospitals. And the same would be said um, years later in the American Civil War, where people's homes often had to become uh, that of hospitals. So yes, wounded American troops were transported to Lawrence's and Richardson's uh, plantations near St. Mark's Church. As for wounded British troops, they were sent to Charleston. General Greene's army marched northward towards the high hills of the Santee. I remember talking about that from an earlier podcast segment. Around September 15th, one week after the Utah Springs Battle, uh, Green's army crossed the Santee River at Nelson's Ferry. And the day after, on September the 16th, they all returned to their original campsite located in the High Hills. Once back in the High Hills camp, General Green wrote letters to Continental Congress, wrote letters to the Continental Congress, I should say, along with multiple state governors requesting supplies and troop reinforcements. Green went as far as in a letter to um, South Carolina Governor John Rutledge. He described uh, to Governor uh, Rutledge the state of um, the overall state of Maryland troops, whom had little clothing, and what the chances were of getting any in the, for, in, in the uh, foreseeable future. You know, here again, clothing is something that a lot of us could take for granted. There are still plenty of places in the world today where, where people are not fortunate enough to get access to uh, proper clothing. We have to keep in mind that whatever uh, troops were provided um, to them 
it may not have been the grandest in terms of, you know, you know, say that of a private or uh, someone who's just, you know, average Joe in the militia or average Joe in the Continental Army. But not everyone is entitled to get three and four suits, or that is outfits. You know, some soldiers are fortunate if they get two uh, outfits. Um, You might be fortunate if you get two pairs of shoes, but who's to say they might last you the whole year? You know, I've probably said it before, and I'd say it again. You know, it was one thing to to declare um, independence from England, but think about how many things, amenities, that we were being forced to give up. In England, let alone in London, you know, London, England, for example, has has a much higher population than Williamsburg, Virginia. The only time Williamsburg's uh, population uh, doubled uh, during colonial times would have been when the um, House of Burgesses were in session. But otherwise, when the House of Burgesses wasn't in session, Williamsburg's population tinkered around one thousand fifty, around a thousand to fifteen hundred people. So. The population of Williamsburg's not big enough to have multiple um, shoe factories. In London, England, there are probably well over 25 shoe factories in London where people are producing uh, shoes on a mass scale to where um, the quality of leather is much more superb. Um, you've got people um, whom you've got a higher population of people whom can. Uh, produce these uh, mass quantities of shoes, send them over uh, to colonial America. Here in colonial America, yes, you might be able to um, get some leather, but it's not going to be the same quality. Uh, So the bottom line is that, um, you know, here we are trying to um, fight a war against the most formidable nation in terms of its military might. Um, From the time that first shots were fired around the world and on April the uh, 19th of 1775, and here we are in 1781, you know, we still have um, inequalities to deal with based upon means of um, accessing uh, clothing, accessing, um, access, having access to the most fundamental uh, needs for survival. So here the Maryland troops have hardly any clothing and not knowing what they're going to be able to get access to in the for, in the foreseeable future, that does cause a great deal of concern for Nathaniel Green because he doesn't know when this war is going to end. Nobody does. I mean, yes, a month later with Yorktown, all that's great, but even that's not the um, slam dunk victory to end it all. So comes September the 12th of 1781, Three days after, three days before Green's uh, forces uh, crossed the Santee River at Nelson's Ferry and made their way back to the High Hills, three days earlier, uh, Loyalist forces led by uh, Colonel David Fanning attacked Hillsborough, being North Carolina's capital. This resulted in their capturing the governor, being that of uh, Thomas Burke. When Green learned of this, General Green learned of this, he sent North Carolina Continentals north into North Carolina. But for all the best intentions, it simply was not meant to be. Uh, the North Carolina Continentals were routed by um, Colonel Fanning's uh, Loyalist forces. The, the North Carolina Continentals lost roughly a third of their force. 
33%. Now, from officers of high-level ranks, including the privates, the Southern Continental Army remained in a good state of mind following the aftermath to the Utah Springs battle. General Greene had written multiple letters about his men's victory. Did you hear that, folks, about their victory? Greene, in other words, Greene felt very confident that his men had won the day, given they had done everything there was in terms of being able to regroup, reform. Militia fired about 17 rounds at most before uh, falling back. Everything seemed to go their way. They had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's uh, forces right where they wanted them to. Stewart's forces were not able to reform. They weren't able to rotate troops. But yet somehow, their lines break. And when their lines break, it makes practical sense for the Americans to charge at them. You know, think about it. You have your bayonets fixed. You've got the enemy. They, they are wearing down. But then there's that roadblock, that roadblock being the brick house. Tough roadblock to have to overcome, but overall Nathaniel Green feels very good about his men's victory, and he wants to be able to tell, the, um, to tell members of Congress this, because if he didn't tell members of Congress about, um, about the victory, then... It, then it would be fair to say that he was shooting himself in the foot. You know, yes, you could you could say that you may have lost X number of men, but you certainly want to make sure you report everything that's credible, everything that's accurate, but you want to be able to um, you want to be able to pitch a good sell. After all, George Washington's plate placed a lot of confidence in Nathaniel Green to have him go south to uh, resurrect um, a mission that was on the brink of um, of uh, utter uh, collapse, especially what in the aftermath of what had happened in the debacle at Camden from August of 1780. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart wrote letters to General Cornwallis and Sir Henry Clinton, emphasizing that victory fell short due to not having sufficient cavalry, but did credit officers below him for helping turn the tide against the Americans around the area surrounding the Brick House. Letters, we would hope, are good, but sometimes the letters that are written are, do uh, result with, uh, mixed, um, with mixed emotions, mixed outcomes. But the letters alone tell the story of what the commanding officers saw on that day. A day that, you know, most people have, didn't even know existed in terms of a battle. But it did happen. And it was, you know, yes, indeed, it was the final battle of the southern, um, of the uh, southern campaign of the American Revolution. Now, did either side know that Utah Springs would become the last major battle fought in South Carolina? Actually, folks, uh, neither side knew, did, would never have thought that uh, following Utah Springs that that this battle would was going to be the last major one fought in the uh, Palmetto State. But not long after uh, hostilities ceased at Utah Springs, action once again did resume. However, the fighting levels 
were much smaller given neither side had enough confidence in attacking the opposition on a larger scale. And what it just meant here, folks, is that neither side had enough um, had enough means of being able to go out and recruit new men, train them to where they really felt confident that another um, attack that um, had potential to bear resemblance to Utah Springs could in fact be done. Although General Green was unable to completely rout Lieutenant uh, Colonel Stewart's army at Utah Springs, Green's troops, however, did enough damage. How so? Well, for one, the British Army never again ventured westward in attempting to control the countryside, or I should say the back country, uh, South Carolina's back country. Therefore, uh, because the British never again ventured westward, they, were remained, they remained in the confines of Charleston. And because the British remained in the confines of Charleston, this meant that the Americans, under General Greene's command, had full control of everywhere else in South Carolina. Besides Charleston, given that the British had control of Charleston, the British were in control of only two other cities. They are coastal ones, Savannah, Georgia, and New York City. The British don't even have Philadelphia anymore, folks. The siege and surrender of Yorktown had greater meaning, given British forces under General Charles Cornwallis surrendered on October 19, 1781 to General Washington, which was made possible largely due to French naval forces cutting off all escape routes by water via the Chesapeake Bay. Cornwallis had been completely blocked off. In the months after Utah Springs come the start of 1782, South Carolina Governor John Rutledge gathered a new elected assembly along with reestablishing an interim state government. The American army remained near Charleston with fighting on smaller scale levels. All major battle operations were completely done. Not long after the battle did both sides report their stories to newspapers as to what happened on the battlefield. Congress, the Continental Congress, did go about presenting General Nathaniel Green with a medal for his leadership actions at Utah Springs. Well, it seems as though things are... Um, are in a better state for South Carolina. Is it fair to say that um, that the southern content, that the southern campaign was in a much better state than it was, say, back in August of 1780, with the, in, with regards to the debacle, the disastrous debacle at Camden? Oh, there's no question about it. Yes, Nathaniel Green may not have gotten his slam dunk victory. I mean, in my opinion, he did achieve a, a victory at uh, Utah Springs, but it wasn't 100%, largely because of the Brick House and what the British, what British reserve forces did at the Brick House under um, le the leadership of uh, Major um, Henry Sheridan, whom led the uh, New York uh, Volunteers. However, Nathaniel Green achieved enough success to where the British never again ventured westward 
in trying to control the backcountry following uh, what had happened at Utah Springs. And the fact that the British remained in the confines of Charleston pretty much tells us that that Nathaniel Green had, in fact, um, achieved a significant, significant victory to where not only he had the rest of South Carolina in um, the American Army's possession, but that it would just be a matter of time before the British would eventually leave Charleston and abandon this cause altogether. Well, thank you for your time as always. And when I look forward, when I, I do look forward to being back on the air with you all again next time. But then again, I always look forward to being back on the air. And when I am on the air next, we are going to be uh, discussing the epilogue to Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign. Thank you again for your time as always. You all are ardent listeners, and without you all, I don't know where I would be. But I hope all of you have a good weekend, uh, no matter where you live in the world. And, uh, and again, when I'm on the air again next, we will be discussing the epilogue to Utah Springs. Take care for now, and stay safe.